Hello, this is the AKO Kane Prize podcast, celebrating emerging writers and exciting stories from the African continent and her diaspora. I'm Ella Wakatama, chair of the AKO Kane Prize for African Writing, an annual literature prize awarded to an African writer of a short story published in English. Subscribe to the AKO Kane Prize podcast and visit kaneprize.com for more information. Follow us at Kane Prize on Twitter and Instagram for all the latest news. You're listening to the Kane Prize podcast. I'm Leila Abolela and today I'm in conversation with Irene Tushabe. Back in the year 2000, in the very first edition of the Kane Prize, I was the winner. And today I'm very lucky to be speaking to Irene Tushabe, who has been shortlisted for this year's Kane Prize. Irene is a Ugandan-Canadian writer and journalist. Her stories have appeared in ADA, Exile Quarterly and Grain, and have been anthologized in the Journey Prize stories. Congratulations, Irene. Thank you, Leila. <laughs> Your short story, A Separation, has been shortlisted for this year's Kane Prize. It's very exciting. How do you feel about that? <laughs> I'm still walking on cloud nine. It's hard to believe some days when I wake up in the morning and uh, there's emails from the prize and it's just so real. It's, it's surreal. I can't believe it still. It's wonderful. I was looking at, at the details of the of the judges and there's such prestigious names in the field of literature and media. And it's awesome to think that they who've read so much, they're so discerning and so steeped in contemporary African literature that they have picked your story. I remember when I was uh, shortlisted for the prize back in 2000 and uh, Ben Okri was uh, the chair of the judges and just knowing that he had read my story and that he had liked my story, it made me so happy. And I used to walk around the house just saying to myself, Ben Okri loves my writing. Ben Okri loves my writing. <laughs> well, you know, when I first heard that, and that, everything you said is just absolutely true for me as well. But when I was shortlisted, when my publisher told me that I had been shortlisted, the first thought that came into my mind was Leila Abulayla was shortlisted for this same award that I am now shortlisted for. It's just so validating because I'm such a big fan of your work and to understand that now we get to rub shoulders. (laughs) (laughs) It's amazing. (laughs) Thank you so much. The prize, of course, comes with so many benefits, but I, I think the important thing is this this feeling of confidence, this feeling that especially when you are beginning your career, that you do get this uh, such a tangible uh, in- encouragement. Yeah. And that's the funny thing about this is that a separation is my first foray into fiction. There was a period in 2015, 2016, when my post-graduation work permit had expired and it wasn't legal for me to work in Canada anymore. But they allowed me to stay while, you know, my application was being processed. But I couldn't work. I had to let go of my journalism job. And my partner, my husband, he said, you've always wanted to write. You know, you could do that now. Nobody's going to come here and say, what are you doing on your computer? So I started and I started it as creative nonfiction. My grandmother, who was very dear to me, had just died. And I was kind of reeling from that. And so I started to write it as creative nonfiction. But through several iterations, it became fiction. And I realized, too, that the more I fictionalized it, the more personal 
it became to me. I mean, a lot of it is invented, but, you know, there's a great deal of myself and my grandmother and my father who reside in this story. Would you like to read some of your story for us, Irene? Sure. Yes, I'd love to. And uh, this excerpt is taken from somewhere in the middle. Harriet has already moved to Canada and she's living in near the university in Regina, Saskatchewan. Dark clouds have gathered above the high-rise across the streets as though getting ready to pounce. But the sunlight pierces their serrated margins, turning them into silver beacons. The sound of my cell phone jolts me. The call has a Ugandan country code. Kaka! I shout into the phone. My elation keeps her name in my mouth longer, making it last. Harriet, it's me, my father answers, his voice loud and strident. A call from father frightens me a little. Always I phone him. It's never the other way around. His preferred medium of communication is email, lengthy reports with headings and subheadings. The last one had an index and a couple of footnotes about his observations of infanticide amongst chimpanzees in Chibale Forest, our sanctuary's rainforest home. Did I know that contrary to previous observations of infanticide, Deadly aggression in chimpanzees is not a gender-specific trait. Are you there, Harriet? I brace myself. I'm here. It's about Yokaka. Father's voice suddenly acquires an uncharacteristic softness. She has died. And so that's sort of central to the story. That's why I picked that. It's a very poignant story, and especially in this year of the pandemic, when so many of us lost family members and close ones, and we were unable to mourn together and unable to travel to attend uh, funerals. A completely opposite point of view would be to say that, that in a way, Harriet has been protected from the, the direct confrontation with the death of her grandmother and all the, 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 the trauma that goes with being in the same place as someone who is actually dying. But you're saying that being away also has its own pain and it also has its own difficulties. For sure. Yeah, you raise really good points. And I think, especially now during the pandemic with people passing away and then there's health guidelines that don't allow for all of us to sort of participate in the ceremonies that we surround around, you know, we surround with death in order to make sense of it and to get some sense of closure. And I think that's uh, what makes this story uh, sort of difficult. That is the tension that Harriet has to deal with is that she can't go. She can't go and participate in the funeral. And uh, Ugandan funerals, I don't know if it's the same for you. They, they go on for like days. They go on for weeks. And I think the important thing about that is that you are processing the loss while surrounded by people who sort of understand what you're going through. And you can, you can share stories and you can talk about this and deal with it in, um, in a way that brings a sense of closure and finality to, okay, her physical presence is gone, is lost to us, but what we have left are these memories that we can share. She doesn't have that. And I think that makes the grief that much more intense. And I think that is why she sort of throws herself out, uh, out there into the elements, into the storm. How death makes us strangers to ourselves, the grief, trying to process it, you do illogical things. And, and, and I think she does not know how to deal with it in this isolation. In the case of, of you asked about, about Sudan and funerals there, they're very quick and, and, and you know, Muslim, Muslim burials are happen as fast mm. as possible. 
So it's very, you know, very rare that that the person who's awake can actually make it in time for the burial. I did not know that. Yeah, yeah, because of the the, the deceased is buried as soon as as possible, within hours if if possible. So really, every time we separate from our loved ones, we know we know then that we are we are not going to be there for the for the funerals. The, the act of separation immediately uh, makes it uh, impossible for us uh, for us to be there. But your story also. It's painful and, 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 and sad, but you move so seamlessly between the two countries. I mean, you move between Uganda and Canada and you have all the rich details in both places. So in a way, uh, the two places don't feel so separate. They almost feel that they are together. Is that how you see them or how your protagonist sees them? I think in the moment of just receiving this news, you know how, I mean, someone you love, when they die, the last time you saw them takes on a whole new significance. You begin to analyze it from different angles. Did she know? Did she know this would be the last time? And, you know, every gesture, every word that was spoken acquires new meaning. And it's sort of glorified. It's intensified. And I think... In the final rewrite, when I decided to put everything in the present tense, both Uganda and in Canada, I realized that I had accomplished that because everything was so immediate. Uh, it doesn't matter what happened then and what was happening now. It all It's an amalgam of a complicated thing that she has to surmount or find a way to deal with. That is why I decided that everything needed to be so immediate so that she was and visceral and she was feeling it all at once. Yeah, it works. It works This that you use the, the present tense and that you have. You did actually succeed in doing that. And I just wondered if you thought about doing it, writing it, not in the first person or, or did the story just come out like that? Was it like that's how the story appeared for you? Or did you at the beginning play around with different ways of telling us the story? It did. This story was sort of, a, I mean, it's very intense and personal to me, but it also became a sort of experimental ground for me because I was learning how to tell stories in, in fiction and learning the narrative arc and the sorts of things that a protagonist needs to go through through before you reach the end. And so I rewrote it. I wrote it over a period of so maybe six months because I would revisit it and put it back and, and go back to it every now and again. And we have in Regina a writer-in-residence program where they have an established author who you can go to and get feedback about your work. So I took it to them and they gave me some feedback on it. And then I rewrote a couple of times more. <laughs> and so in the beginning, it was sort of memoir about my grandmother and I. And then the second time I rewrote it, when I fictionalized it, it was close third. And then the final version of it is in first person narrative present. And that is sort of what worked in the end. It really does work. And I never thought of it as being nonfiction. It does read as, as fiction to me. I didn't mm. never, it never crossed my mind uh, that it wasn't uh, fiction. I mean, I knew that the protagonist like you had moved from uh, Uganda to Canada, but it did feel like the details, uh, you know, the prose, everything, the reader gets sucked into the story. It did really feel like, like a complete, kind of fictional uh, world. I do have a, a favorite part. This is after she hears the news of her grandmother's uh, death. You should read it so we can hear it from you, from, from the author themselves. Outside, the dark clouds have huddled together, blocking out the sun. The slanted lashes of rain beat down from the sky, battering my window pane like they want into the apartment. I pull on my sneakers and fly down the stairs, a caged bird let loose. 
I ran to what was Canna Lake, a path shown to me by Mr. Stevenson. Gaining speed, I part gray sheets of rain as hot tears run down my cheeks. Every few minutes, bolts of lightning fire up the black skies, followed by a ripping sound like a great big cloth being torn down the seam. I splash through silver puddles, pulling on the concrete lip of the lake. I want so badly to go back home. Oh, it's so beautiful. And I applaud you. <laughs> and Thank I you, wish, Leila. <laughs> I wish we were in London in front of a live audience and they would have really clapped for you and loved this piece. You know, while I'm thinking about it, I was rereading this story after quite a long time. It reminded me of a story of yours that I had read in Elsewhere Home about this. I think it's maybe one of the first or the second. Salwa, the, the sister, is sitting with Latifa and she yes. says, I wish you'd never moved away. Like In going <laughs> away, you've become more old fashioned. And mm. I thought, oh, my goodness, that is what has happened to me, because moving away from home, I think it just creates that longing for home that you become steeped in it even from a distance that you've become even more traditional than the ones who remained yeah that's really interesting the way moving changes us and actually this is something i wanted to ask you about in a non-fiction piece that you wrote you mentioned an old proverb that your father is fond of of saying and it means those who journey see yes my dad is fond of uh, this proverb and uh, it's a uh, in in ruchiga it is uh the other day I called him, I had just bought potting mix for indoor plants and he laughed and laughed and he said, a white man will make you buy anything dirt? You just bought dirt with money? <laughs> Did he say the proverb again? Yes. So then he said it again. He said, <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. How has the move from Uganda to Canada transformed you, Irene? So many ways. I was raised in a Christian family. My mother, when she met my father, she was on her way to becoming a Catholic nun, a, a sister. But my dad swept her off her feet. And, and when they got married, she gave up Catholicism and became a Protestant, which is my father's religion. It's a common practice in Uganda. You sort of give up everything and take up whatever your husband is. And my dad was not even a devout Protestant, but my mom was very serious about it. So we did the whole, you know, we went to church every day and we prayed at mealtime and we prayed before bed. And I went actually to a boarding school, a Christian boarding school where it was strict religion. And I always felt that tension between sort of science and faith, but I never questioned it until really, until I moved away and began to sort of look at faith through a lens of logic. And I always sort of had this awareness of faith being operating on a higher plane than logic, than reason. It's just, it's, it's grand. And I wanted it so much. I still wanted to have that, but I had lost it. And so then at some point, I think I've been reading Kierkegaard too. And he too reasons that faith, he, he acknowledges how faith is much bigger. It's, it's grand. It's, it's glorious to have. You know, I acknowledge that I don't have it. I once had it and I lost it. And I decided that, you know, I will try to move on to be a wonderful person who does, who, and you know, I think I still have faith. I don't know if, if this is the sentiment that you might share, the feeling you get after praying, the sort of unburdening that happens and you feel that all is well in the world. I was not getting that anymore. And then recently I started to a few years ago, I started to meditate, not the way that Buddhists do or people who, you know, have been raised that way do. Mine is a sort of sitting down and closing my eyes and counting from one to four 
and again from one to four and again from one to four for however long, 30 minutes. And I feel that on, on the days when it works and I do it every day on the days when it works, I get the same feeling as, as though I just prayed. But that was hard. It was hard to lose that faith because it's an orphaning in a way when you've been raised to be, you know, to, to have absolute faith in God, to have that taken away. It's orphaning. It's a, it's a grief process. Is this something that you're exploring in the novel that you're writing at the moment? Yes. And I, I really do love probing that tension between, you know, that, that lives where faith intersects with reason, but always with the understanding that faith is the most superior, but from whatever point of view. And so my novel is uh, the protagonist is a, a teenager and teenagers tend to have this sense of I, this might be insulting to a teenager that might hear this, but that is sort of black and white. You know, they have a strict sense of justice. They say this is how it should be done. So why is nobody doing it? And so she resides in that world of, of intense logic, which could be problematic, but this is who she is. And it's a close third person narrative. So she was, was sitting on her shoulder and she's guiding us through this world where her sister, uh, older sibling, is, is gay and in, in a country where it's still not allowed to be, you know, it's still illegal, it's criminal. And the family is strongly Christian, like the one I grew up in. So it really causes, stirs up tension. It uh, threatens the family unit, this, um, this announcement. So how far are you now with the novel? I've finished two, <laughs> two rewrites of it, and I'm on a third one, which I believe to be the last. Oh, um, excellent. Yeah, it's in pretty good standing because the first draft did not go over so well. Uh, most drafts, I suppose, don't tend to. But I rewrote it again, and, and now uh, I think I've found the rhythm for it. And I think this might be the last draft until I'm happy to, for somebody else to look at it and say otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> That is very, very good to hear. So I wish you all the best with that. That is exciting. And I hope that I'll get to read it one day and we'll all get to read it one day when you're happy to to, to share it with the world. <laughs> oh, yes. I'd be so happy for you. Because, you know, I think my main character, because when I started writing it, I'd actually been reading Lyrics Alley for the second time. Because the first, see, the first time I used to read novels before becoming a writer, I would read for pleasure. But then when I started to become a writer and I wanted to learn, then I was rereading these books that I'd read before, but with mm. the keen interest of absorbing sort of, of learning. So reading it, it's, it's a different reading, I feel, when you're trying to be a writer and reading for the purpose of learning, as opposed to just reading to pass time and, you know, to enjoy it because you love doing it. So I had been reading it. And actually, there is an excerpt where my protagonist quotes something Noor says from Lyrics Alley. So I would definitely want for you to read it and say, stop using my work in your work. <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah, I think that that's, that's what happens when you start to write, that your reading changes. I mean, writing mm. is such an extension of reading that, that once you become a writer, that is the thing that you lose. You lose this innocence as a reader. And then once you become a published writer, you lose the love of bookshops because every time you go to bookshops you you feel intimidated by oh, all no. the bestsellers and all the anyway that's <laughs> I don't want to tell you about all that but it's <laughs> it's uh, 
it's different. You get a, you start to have a different relationship with writing and with reading and with books, I guess, once you start writing. But it's very important that, that you're mentioning this about the reading. And I hope that, you know, any all aspiring writers who are listening to this would take note that it's so important to read in order to write. I read while I'm writing as well. I mean, I'm not the sort of... Mm. Some, some people don't like to read while they are writing, but I do like to read books that, that kind of belong to the world in which I'm writing. I feel that it's oh. kind of like conversation with what I'm writing. See, I find that intimidating, especially when okay. it's a, like an early... And you know, the language is not really up to par and you're just trying to get the thing out there. And then reading a work that's refined, it just feels like I am never going to be able to achieve that. So mostly what I do, I just read. And I love reading uh, studies, like published studies from scientific work. So usually when I'm writing fiction, I'm reading nonfiction. And then when I'm writing nonfiction, I'm reading fiction because I feel like then that inspires the nonfiction. Yeah, this is very much the kind of advice. I remember a book that was really a classic called Becoming a Writer by Deborah Brand, I think. This is the advice that she gives in this Becoming a Writer that you stop reading. You try and avoid words. You, 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 mm. you try and, you know, knitting and things like that. She thinks that that, that increases the flow of writing. I can see that. One of the things she mentioned was people in prison who are deprived of reading material and they're deprived of the company of people and they're deprived of, uh, of you know, conversation and, and all that. They start almost writing on the walls they, because they produce all these words. And so her advice is, you know, if you want to produce it's best not to not to read while you're while you're writing and then generate a flow and or if you have you know if you've got writer's block or something she this is one of her advice that you stop reading and you get up in the morning and and that's when the your creative side is going on and that's when you bring the writing out but do you write in early in the morning because some some people you I know you have young children so how do you write around their schedule I'm not, <laughs> I'm not so much a morning person, but I find that when I can do it in the morning, when I can get up early and write before waking the kids up, that I do my best work then. But in the normal times before the pandemic, when I got up and took them to school and had the whole day before me, I usually would, yeah, just drop them back to school and come back and write. And that really worked very well. Then until I didn't have that anymore because they've been in e-school and learning from home. So everybody's at home all the time and, you know, you love them. But at, at the same time, it's just like, I can't do this. But <laughs> <laughs> I find various nooks around the house where I can get a little bit of uninterrupted work. And I try, you know, I try every day, even if it's for 30 minutes to bring myself to the work, to come to the well and try to see if I can draw some some water. And some days it works and some some days it does not. But you know what you said about doing something else other than reading? I've found that to work. I am um, I've been a long life runner, like recreated sort of recreationally. Uh, I ran marathons before, but I haven't for a couple of years. But I found that I could balance my writing practice with my running practice, which is you have to practice every day in order to bring yourself to a level where you can run 42 kilometers or 21 kilometers. So I, I would run every day. And I found that on the days when I had written well in the morning, I run impressively. <laughs> <laughs> and if the writing had been hard, I, was just, I couldn't. I couldn't even make it through a 5K. Oh, but you, what you're doing is right because you've finished a novel 
and you've got a story shortlisted for the the Kane Prize. So, <laughs> so you're really on the right uh, track, Irene. And congratulations again, and uh, all the best with everything. It's lovely to speak to you today. I'm Irene Tashabe. I'm Leila Abulela, and you've been listening to the Kane Prize podcast. Subscribe to the AKO Kane Prize podcast and visit kaneprize.com for more information. Follow us at Kane Prize on Twitter and Instagram for all the latest news. Thank you.